This one's curled up real tight. You can see it. <laughs> it is a tail. It's like a doorknob. I don't understand genetically what's going on there. Like, what is the evolutionary... <laughs> what is the evolutionary of purpose tail? of a curly tail? What is the benefit of a curl? Pigs have them. What's the benefit of a pig's curly tail? It's, it's adorable. True. It is. It sounds like adorable. You can pull it. Me. <laughs> And then you let it go. It's it's it, it's, it's nature's uh, spring. Feel like <laughs> well said. If you wind up Thanks. the curly dog tail and then let it go, the dog will then propel forward. Yeah, it's like a wind up toy. <laughs> it's apparently it's a vertebrae deformity. That's what causes curly oh. tails. Really? Yeah, I guess it was probably something that we probably bred, right? Like with most other. Aspects like, of dogs. Like that just, was a quirk that yeah, we, we came with adorable. another thing we liked. Yeah, and then we were just like, all right, keep this going. Yeah. That's why, like, I mean, French bulldogs, as much as I love them and think they're adorable, only look that way because we decided this fucked up. I hate that. Like, face. nasal mouth thing was cute. I hate it. I hate the pug's face. I don't like the bulldog face. Any dog that, like, it can't breathe on its own accord <laughs> because we bred it that way. Like, it just shouldn't exist. We just yeah. shouldn't make those well, dogs. Well, my anymore. thing, too, about it is even even setting aside how fucked up that is to do to a dog, and let alone a whole breed of them, like, why? Like, it's not that cute. I guess it's ugly cute on the best of days. I, mean, I don't know. Who, who wants a fucking tulip, man? But go ask the Dutch. <laughs> I like tulips. I think they're fine, but who'd want to buy that many? I guess the Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdos. Did you ever see that movie? Tulips will carry the victory. Wasn't that Tulip Fever? Am I thinking of something else? I don't know. There was a movie that, like, it had a bunch of stars in it, but it flopped, and it was, like, Cara Delevingne and Dane DeHaan, but also <laughs> other people. 2017? Yeah. Seems like it's pretty boring. But a painter who falls in love with a married woman whose portrait he has been commissioned to paint. Yeah, sounds boring. It, it, sounds, it, sounds, it sounds like mom lit. But it is set during the Dutch yeah, Tulip Mania. Tulip Mania. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want something that's incidental to Tulip Mania. I want Tulip Mania in front and center. Listen, if you're going to put Tulip Mania in your book, it needs to be about Tulip Mania. It's too right. big of a subject to sideline. Fucking Hollywood. I've had it up to here with them cutting out Tulip Mania. Yeah, like, how, do, how do you get a call on a movie Tulip Fever and you're not going to all your characters running around saying, like, I got <laughs> I that Tulip Fever. You're like rubbing tulips all over themselves naked in the field somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Dame DeHaan, and who's this other person? Cara Delevingne. Uh, well, it's the same no. year, in the yeah, same year as Valerian. Yeah, I know, but this was actually filmed several years before Valerian. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it got shelved. sat on shelves for a while. Because so Cara Delevingne and Dame DeHaan... We were getting was... round two of them? Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? You had the first go, and yeah. someone was like, wow, these guys are doing it so well, we gotta get them back together for are something Are we else. realizing that we have to put Tulip Fever on next year's schedule so that we could... They're like the Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan of our time. <laughs> They just keep being cast opposite each other. Audiences eat them up. America's sweetheart, Cara Delevingne. Good evening, and welcome to Why Did We Watch This, the podcast where three friends watch a spooky movie, talk about what they like, what they didn't like, and how they would fix it. Myself, I am Brendan, low self-esteem, high narcissism, chronic feelings of emptiness, identity disturbance, Drischler. And I'm Chris, in the night, in the dark, Ravel. And I am Lee, mogul of reliability scale, Delahanty. <laughs> and the movie we watched for our annual Halloween Spooktacular is 1999's The Haunting, Ooh. directed by Jan Devant, starring Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Owen Wilson, Wilson, what's her name? Lily Taylor. Lily Taylor, thank you. Marion Saudis, Bruce Dern, I don't know, it doesn't really matter after that's, that. That's it after that. And a bunch of CDI Choco Babies. <laughs> 
Yeah, of um, just like mahogany polish to that rich, rich hue of milk chocolate. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> you know it's authentic when you see how gooey it is. <laughs> All those little like all those little faces. I love how they uh, they they look shocked in one direction, and then you see them go. Ooh. <laughs> That'd be a good like voiceover to be like. Ooh. <laughs> uh, and the haunting is full of this crap. And how else to help you survive this crappy, crappy CGI than with a delicious cocktail? Mm. So we did kind of two takes on this because our initial thought was that we wanted to use blood orange juice, but it turns out blood orange juice is not really super in season right now. It's something that's a little bit more toward early winter. Yeah. So we had a difficult time finding it. So we tried two variants to see if we could get something that would taste a little bit different than a standard mimosa. The basic concept that we had was called Hill House After Dark. The one that we settled on eventually, and then we'll go back to the first one, was blood orange, Italian soda, Prosecco, Saint Germain, and orange juice. What you do is you make ice cubes from the orange juice, mix one part blood orange, Italian soda with one part champagne and a cocktail food, add a little bit of splash of Saint Germain and a few of the ice cubes then to garnish. The original version that we tried out initially was in lieu of the blood orange, Italian soda, you did one part orange juice and one part grapefruit juice. Everything else remained the same. Uh, I think we all, or at least I know Lita and I agree with her that the blood orange, Italian soda was the better of the two. Yeah, it was sweeter and tastier. It was sweeter. And my initial, I was a little bit worried at first that it would be too sweet, I think, because Italian soda tends to be yeah. very, very sugary. Mm-hmm. It, it I worked, like it. It worked it nicely sweet. with with everything else. Yeah, the Prosecco in it really sort of cut the overwhelming saccharineness yeah. of it, which uh, I was pleased by. And the one with the juice was fine. It yeah. wasn't bad, but uh, I think the blood orange Italian soda worked a little bit better because it had actual blood orange taste to it. I think it was a little bit closer to what we could kind of hope we would have in the first place as well. So. Yeah. If you got served either of these drinks in a bar, you would not complain to the waitress. No, no you would not. Waiter. It would be very rude if or you did. serving person. They would be just fine. Yeah. Compliments to the bartender, you'd say. You'd say yeah. Yes, thank you, barkeep. They were, I thought they were tasty. Uh, it was just very solid mimosas both times. Yeah, yeah they were. It, it, it was it was nice having a bit of a mimosa, which I don't think we've really done before. Even if it was like four o'clock in the afternoon, no, hey, no. you can never <laughs> have a mimosa. Never too late. Um, having talked about the drink, let us move on to the synopsis of the movie, 1999's The Haunting. Chris, do you have Wikipedia open? I sure do. Then tell us what happens. Please, tell us what happens. So, Eleanor Nell Vance, played by Lily Taylor, is an insomniac and has cared for her invalid mother for 11 years. After her mother dies, her sister Jane, Virginia Madsen, and Jane's husband, Lou, Tom Irwin, inherit the house. They eject Nell so they can sell it, and Nell faces homelessness. Nell receives a phone call about an insomnia study directed by Dr. David Morrow, uh, Liam Neeson, at Hill House, a secluded manor in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. She agrees to enter the clinical study. At the house, she meets Mr. and Mrs. Dudley, Bruce Dern, and Marion Seldes, a strange pair of caretakers. Two other participants arrive, Luke Sanderson, Owen Wilson, and Theodora, or Theo for short, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, along with Dr. Morrow and his two research assistants. So those were both research assistants. I mean, I, I knew she was because you see him talking he to her. Was? Yeah, but yeah, I, I guess he is, right? Like, who knows? Was he pretending not to be? Because I feel to the like he definitely pretended to be. I mean, that's uh, there, there's a couple of questions I have about how they laid yeah. that out with his research assistants anyway. But I'm sorry, go on. Chris. It's okay. Unknown yeah. to the participants, Dr. Marrow's true purpose is to study the psychological response to fear, intending to expose his subjects to increasing amounts of terror. Each night, the caretakers chain the gate outside of Hill House, preventing anyone from getting in or out until morning. During the first night, Dr. Marrow relates the story of Hill House. The house was built by Hugh Crane, a 19th century textile tycoon. Crane built the house for his wife, hoping to populate it with a large family of children. 
children. However, all of Crane's children died during their birth. Crane's wife, Renee, killed herself before the house was finished, and Crane became a recluse. When Marrow's assistant declares she feels there is more to the story, she is severely wounded in a freak accident, and both research assistants leave for the hospital. As the four people stay... In the house, supernatural events begin happening. A mysterious force tries to open the door to Theo and Nell's bedroom. Interesting. There are banging noises again, are against the walls, and there are temperature drops in the room and hallways. Nell starts seeing ghosts of children in curtains and sheets, and a large portrait of Hugh Crane morphs into a skeletal face and is vandalized with the words, Welcome to Home, Eleanor, written in blood. During a heated argument, Theo and Luke deny any involvement in these events. They accuse Nell of being an attention seeker, but she denies that. Nell becomes determined to prove that the house is haunted. She finds Crane's hidden office and learns that Crane used extensive child labor in his cotton mills. He took several orphans into his home, tortured and killed them, and then burned their bodies in the fireplace. Their ghosts are trapped in the house, providing Crane with an eternal family. Nell also learns that Crane had a second wife named Carolyn, from whom she is descended. Dr. Marrow is skeptical of Nell's claims and soon reveals his true psychological fear study to the group. After a statue tries to drown him in a pool of water in the greenhouse, Marrow realizes Hill House is haunted after all and a danger to everyone. After several more terrifying events, Nell insists she cannot leave the ghost to suffer for eternity at Crane's hands. Theo offers to let Nell move in with her, but Nell reveals she is related to Carolyn Crane and claims she must help the children move on to the afterlife. Dr. Marrow demands everyone leave Hill House, but as they attempt to flee, Hugh Crane's ghost seals the house, trapping them inside. Luke defaces a portrait of Hugh Crane. Crane's enraged spirit drags Luke into the fireplace where he is decapitated. Dr. Marrow and Theo flee the house while Nell distracts Crane. Realizing that Crane thrived on the fear he created in the children, Nell declares she is not afraid of Crane any longer. Nell's declaration weakens Crane's ghost, and he is pulled into a decorative bronze door. Crane tries to drag Nell in with him, but the children's spirits help her to fight him off. As Nell dies, an image of her posing as a motherly figure is left in the bronze door, surrounded by many happy children. The Dudleys approach at dawn. Dr. Marrow and Theo silently walk away from Hill House. Okay. So that is, I guess, the story of the haunting. Technically. I mean... Anything that's mentioned in that does happen in the movie, right? Yep. These things happen. And I think for the most part, I, I would quibble a little bit about, I don't remember them specifically stating that he took children to his house, tortured and killed them. And then... Yeah, I feel like there's some suppositions there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, he clearly brought children to his house. They died. Presumably he killed them. I don't recall it being like a torture thing. But I digress. All of that, yes. Whenever you hear it spoken that way, <laughs> read on Wikipedia, it makes some level of sense. Yeah. You can tell that there's a story happening here. Um, I posit, when you see this movie, you have a bit of a harder time telling I, how these things are connected. I really am going to have to start a standards committee on, on Wikipedia for, like, where are you getting your yeah. information Citation from? needed yeah. for a lot on of On some of these... Inf- these bits in this because we watched did we watch the same movie where did you figure this out yes, yes. well Are you me i you feel like up? a lot of people i wonder to what extent someone who is writing the synopsis for this movie must then also have some amount of affection for it and maybe they allow that to kind of project or fill in gaps so that i do not feel the movie filled in that's true especially the one thing to consider in there is the part where it explicitly states as so does now that she reveals that she is related to the second life of Hugh Crane now it doesn't say how she finds that out in there nor do we see how she finds out in the movie I think when you read a synopsis you're just sort of like okay she must discover this right right? maybe she finds a family tree maybe she finds a book maybe a ghost tells her no 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 none of the above if you really had to squint I'm 
my guess would be the movie wants us to believe that scene that where she's back in the weird mirrored dancing room that when she sees that ghost version of herself becoming pregnant and like saying like welcome home Eleanor I think that's supposed to I think that's supposed to be it it's not enough doesn't she look in the mirror before then and her face her face is like weird it's becoming weirdly happy it's like a different face yeah yeah I, I mean, I, I think the scene of her in the creepy calliope room where she sees her reflection in the mirror get pregnant, my interpretation of that scene was that that is her realizing that Hugh Crane wants to, like, knock her up and mm. use her to have ghost babies. Like, I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm not saying it's good. That was what I thought of it, is that she is somehow becoming pregnant because Hugh Crane wants her to become pregnant. If that is not Hugh Crane making her see that, I don't know why she's seeing it. Or why the kids... Like, right. Why do the kids want... Like, I can understand the kids would want her as a mother figure, maybe. We can go into all that maternal crap that's thrown into this version of the movie. But it doesn't make sense to me that they would want her to imagine herself pregnant. It would make more sense if she sees herself surrounded by a bunch of children who are all, like, reaching out to her or something like that would be fine. When she sees herself pregnant, it just makes me think, like, how did she get pregnant? Who did this to you, right. Eleanor? It also, I think, when you're looking through the synopsis on Wikipedia, it also sort of drives home, like, yeah, the things happened, but in the movie, it's hard to kind of point at things and be like, so that's a plot beat, and this is where we move this part along, right? and this is where the, I mean... And this part led to this part. Like, It's all just, I don't even know how to describe it. They're just sort of vaguely connected vignettes, almost. I don't know. It's just it's just being spooky for spooky sake. Right. Not much thought for how they connect. Yeah, yeah. So springing off of that, the first thing I wanted to sort of go into was uh, something we had talked about briefly whenever we were watching this movie was sort of our thoughts on these kind of movies in particular. Basically, um, with these sort of haunted house movies, right? You have two different kind of varieties for the most part. You're going to have the movies where it's all psychologically, it's all happening in their head, mm-hmm. and the movies where it is very clearly a hundred percent something supernatural is happening. It is a threat to these people in the house. Uh, the original book, The Haunting, clearly falls, according to Shirley Jackson, who wrote the book, she says it's clearly supposed to be a ghost story. There is supposed to be ghosts involved. That being said, it does not mean it is sort of like a ghost story to the extreme that this one is, where there are things jumping out at you and walls grabbing you and shit like that. Mm-hmm. The original 1960s Haunting, directed by Robert Wise, is clearly more of a psychological movie, where it takes that as sort of a spring work, but never outright says like oh yes there are ghosts in this house there's a ghost banging on the door that's what it is so uh, those clearly are falling kind of like on one side of the spectrum now you've got this all the way on the other side of the seesaw pushing it down launching those other two things up into the air this is like outright saying yes there are ghosts we can tell that there's ghosts there's footprints there's Mm -hmm. physical evidence your bed turns into a scary monster archways in your room turn into creepy eyes while Mm -hmm. Hugh Crane's looking for you he comes out of a painting at the end like the fucking Grim Reaper this is clearly happening yeah Lee, I know you were saying that you have a definite preference for one of these things, or at the very least, you have a preference for one that sort of melts them a little bit more than what this movie does. Well, yeah. I mean, there are two thoughts. There are two big complaints I have. I think the one that you're asking about now is is how I really uh, object to, like, the fucking bed turning into a cage. And that yes! Is, like, I don't know. I don't... It crosses a threshold for me where, like, if you're telling me that this is a ghost movie, there are, there are things that... I don't believe in ghosts. Ghosts mm-hmm. aren't real, guys, by the way. What? If we're in a movie world where ghosts exist, there are things that I believe ghosts in a movie could do uh, to cause spiritual and physical harm to people, and there are things that I think are outside of their uh, purview. Mm-hmm. And of that, 
molding architecture and like I don't know, making a house like a house physically coming alive. Right. The the, the walls start moving inward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bed starts like basically pinning her down. Yeah. The and image of Hugh Crane pops out of the ceiling. And then the thing they is, just is that swim out. people then go into the room and like she is the right. the fucking bed is a kid. Right. They turn around and they see Hugh Crane coming out of the ceiling again. Yeah. And that's nonsense to me. Like, I just, it's, uh, I suddenly just lose all credibility. Like, I would have bought a scene where she thinks this is happening to her and she imagines the bed turning into a cage and pinning her down and ripping her dress up and giving her scratches. And they come in and she's just thrashing around in the bed, but she does have torn Right, and then she, like, wakes up, looks down, and sees that in the exact same fashion as it was in her illusion. She has injuries caused by the ghost doing that. But the bed didn't move. The bed can't move. Right, the ghost made her think that the bed had... Yes. That That is stupid to me. And the fact that the statues... Like, I guess we never actually see the statues, like, move... They never acknowledge... Oh, no, the, the fucking griffin does, though. Yeah, the griffin gets really they, hyperactive And they the actually end. have to, like, beat the stupid stone griffin back with a yeah. That's yeah, so that's, stupid. That's, that's, that's gonna do. fucking do anything. Right. Do you also like how it just took a few whacks and then it just and goes like, right oh, back okay. into its shape? Like, yeah, okay. alright, alright. I'm not getting paid enough for this. Um, it's also, that I think the way it, it manifests tends to be sort of silly looking, which also lends to it being hard to take seriously. Yeah, well, it's bad CGI. It is, one. yeah, unequivocally. My, my other complaint was more about uh, I don't know if you wanted me to talk about this elsewhere mm. in the episode, but about uh, how ghosts work. <laughs> you yeah, let's, let's go, go into it. Uh, I don't like movies where uh, ghosts are just like, I don't know. I, I prefer ghost stories to be about something where there's like an unresolved issue or grudge or um, or sin that has to be like absolved or reconciled or repented for in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And I guess this movie sort of falls into that umbrella. But I hate, I hate the way it does it. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, the, the biggest issue that I have with this is, that, well, it does. It, it is playing by some sort of rules. I have trouble yeah. telling what those rules are, mm-hmm. how they determine what they are, yeah. and, and how, how we, like, get you, to that point. And how you fix the problem by someone giving up their life. Right, by, like, by yelling at him life. in front of right. a door, too. Yeah, and then, and then yeah. by the way, it's the stupidest way that she dies, where it's like, not even, it just seems like her spirit is just like, I die now. I guess. Right, yeah. There's no physical thing that happens to her that kills her, which is dumb right. shit. The ghost goes through her and she dies. We all know that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. but I really hate ghost stories where like the woman in black is a prime example where Mm -hmm. like they go through all the work of figuring out why this ghost has been created I guess like how this happened where the ghost wants this woman was fucked over in her life and blah 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 and they they work to like absolve that problem and like and you know give her some sort of reconciliation and then she just decides to keep killing kids and people and you're like okay it sucks, I guess. It's, yeah. I guess don't get fucked over in life or your internal existence will be... Right, so the rest of all eternity, you'll just be a jealous bitch. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I guess f- for me, um, I, I I had talked about this briefly too, but I said like the while I enjoy the woman in white a lot... Black. Um, black, thank you. Never will get it right. Uh, woman in black. I, I do agree that the ending is a little bit out of like... It, it seems like it's in there just to sort of throw the audience through a loop. The last yeah. thing would be like... And I, I like... The Woman in Black is a amazingly tense, spooky film. No, yeah. Film. Especially I for just, being relatively lo-fi. I feel really cheated by the ending. Right, no, and I, I think the issue is because it's not building on any internal logic the movie has created up until that point. Yeah. And I, while I acknowledge that, you know, in real life, there are, you know, if something happens, you can't always ascribe logic to it, right? Like, in real life, if you somehow encountered an angry ghost, you might not be able to make it stop just by being like, and here's the bones of your dead child, I'm going to bury the both yeah. of you together. Now you'll be happy, right? Perhaps that ghost <laughs> would not be 
happy, but the fact of the matter is you're watching a movie, and the movie needs to operate under some sort of logic. And yeah. I think that that is the biggest issue they have there. And I think Poltergeist Contrarias, which you had also brought up, doesn't really have a whole lot of internal logic behind it, but it also doesn't posit that there ever is. Like, mm-hmm. they basically say, like, we can't explain this sort of thing. These things are going to happen. Maybe it's happening because of this. I don't know. Let's just get your kid back, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Which is fine by me. And like I had also said, The Ring, I think, is a very good example of a ghost story that has logic where you are led to believe it's one thing and then at the end you find out it's another. And I think it works because it's not actively contradicting anything you were told previously. Mm-hmm. You just were misunderstanding what you were being told, mm-hmm. basically. Where, like, you think that the whole point is that Samara wants to be found and taken out of the well and given, like, a nice burial or something. And the point is, like, no, that's not what she wants. She wants everyone to know this fucking awful thing that happened to her and to understand what she went through. In this case, I would, I would argue that in this movie, we get neither the specific thing. Yeah. Because we're really not sure what the issue is. Well, for one thing, like, the ghost, you would think, if anything, the ghost would be the kids upset that they were, like, taken to this house and killed. Right. But it's the ghost of the old guy who was some sort of evil monster in life and continues to be an evil monster in death. And what does he want? IDK. He wants more kids? Yeah. I don't know. No, I get, yeah, that's what I don't... And I think that also goes back to, like, the image of Eleanor pregnant. Like, does he want more babies and that's why she's brought to this house? Like, is that his whole thing? That he, like, or even in death, he's, like, more babies? Her to come and free them. Right, that's some dumb bullshit too where we find early on we see Nell like getting a phone call from someone question mark and she's, she's like oh, uh, a study in the newspaper? Let me see. Oh yes, I see it here. I'll, I'll, I'll participate. Thank yeah. you. And then at the end of the movie very close to the end she's talking to Liam Neeson and she's like but like why did you call and tell me about the study? He's like Eleanor, I never told you about the study. And it's like she oh asked my God. at the weirdest time. Right. It's, it's like, like in the middle of like them trying to escape yeah. the house. Catherine Zeta-Jones and Owen Wilson are like actively trying to get out. She's like, but hey, wait a minute. Why'd you call me about this? It's just strange to me that this never comes up earlier. If she thinks that Liam Neeson called her, why at no point was she ever like, incidentally, thanks for calling me. Or as you said in the phone call, or we've actually met before. You don't need to introduce me. We spoke on the phone. Or like, why wouldn't she bring that up at like that stupid like introductory dinner when everyone just goes deep into her shit for no reason? Right. (laughs) It just seems like that's in there as a twist, but logically it could not be some sort of shocking event because it has to have come up before. Anyway, I I digress. I'm getting off topic from that sort of thing. That's just, again, dumb internal logic. No, I mean, yeah... This movie is bad just because the ghost makes no... So, like, I guess in this movie, if you are just, like, a horrible, horrible, evil person and then you die, you get to continue to be horrible. Right, right, right. Yeah. right you're getting no punishment for it, basically. Yeah. You're not miserable. You still get to enact... You, you get to make children miserable for yeah. all eternity, basically. It's also... It ends up kind of being a... Um, for a horror movie, not a scary villain, really. Because... Yeah. It's just this sort of ill-defined, amorphous evil. Right. And what's happening in the movie, I guess, is attributable to ghosts, but I don't know which ones, so I'm just sort of like, mm? Right. I mean, I think the fact that he's not scary is, it's two points. One is just that, like, not enough things that actually are scary are happening, which is a big part of it. The other part is just that we don't know what his deal is well right. enough, right? Like, we don't know really what he did in life, you know? Like, we kind of piece together later on that I guess he was taking children from his mills, dragging them to his house, but, like, Wikipedia posits that he tortured and killed them, which I don't get, because I don't think that tracks in terms no, of what his character was. I don't think they say that. 
yeah. and we don't, I don't know why. why? Right, why wouldn't? Because he basically says that, like, the, the idea is, why? Remember that wow. evangelist? Yeah, what? Remember that evangelist line where he's like, why? Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> why? That's, my, that's me with this movie. <laughs> why? Why? <laughs> um, but, but, like, if he wanted this house to be full of the laughter of children forever or whatever, like, why would he torture them? You know, like, it just, like, what I can believe it would be is that he drags them there and they're like, okay, it's been great. I'm going to go and see my parents. I was like, oh, no. No, you're not. You're staying Maybe here forever. it's like a bad translation. So the, the tears of children in, <laughs> in French, that sounds a lot like laughter. The frustrating thing <laughs> is, as well, they set up that Liam Neeson has told them what he believes to be a fictional but kind of well, scary, well, no, no. I guess, he knows it's real. Yeah, he, that's, the, that's what bugs me, is that oh. he does know it's real. So he does know it's real. He, well, he, he knows... He knows that there is some fact to what he's telling them. Yes. This was a guy who built this house. He had a wife who died. Mm-hmm. That's all I got for you. It's weird to me that he is telling them a real factual thing, first of all, to begin with. Like, I just think it's strange that he would tell them this. I don't know why that bugs me so much, but it does. When he could just pull like anything out of his ass well, and be like... I guess there is the note of, like, oh, the truth was actually different from that story, at least somewhat because he didn't well, yeah. in, his, in his telling he didn't know about Carolyn but I mean but what I, I think it's weird is we never revisit that to be like oh okay but what really happened then yeah but I mean I think I understand I mean, well if it was a modern day story I definitely understand why you tell them why who really owns the house because mm. Uh, people have phones to right, look it up. Right. But maybe that was a similar thought where, like, there's stuff in the house, like, his pictures in here, there are monogrammed things in the house, like, people might, f- if I don't tell something close to the truth, right, people, people will, will like, start to suspect it. Yeah, yeah so I can't just make up any old bullshit. But I think he was telling a very stripped down version of the truth. That was meant to be spun off into this specific myth right. that they did create. Like, oh, we wanted the, the house to be filled with children. Maybe he didn't you know, he maybe that was a, him making it up. Like, he did know that there was this guy, right. married this woman, woman never had kids, all the mm-hmm. kids died, mm-hmm. and everything else was him setting up seeds, narrative seeds, to be, like, twisted into a horror. Right, so they would basically just take that concept over yes. it. I guess, I mean, the thing that I find odd is that I, I almost feel like in a movie like this where you have this one character doling out little hints about the backstory to mm-hmm. these people and then just being like, let's see what they come up with, is that I feel like at some point you kind of expect... Eleanor to tell him something that only he should know about this right. house and then he's like but I never told you about mm-hmm. wife number two or something like that and that's the thing that like makes him think something's up because there's the scene at the end before he gets dunked in the statue water <laughs> where he's like basically talking on the phone and he like basically comes to the decision apropos of nothing where he's like never should have done this should have left after what's her face got hit in the eye of the harpsichord I should have done it after now how the breakdown and I feel like that's the moment where he should <laughs> realize that something's up with the house because Nell has mentioned something to him that only he should know and that's what causes him to suddenly realize that things have gone awry but there he's just sort of like boy I really fucked up this time and then just decides to end it at that point there and then the statue gives him a swirly it just feels like nothing really builds off of what he's doing in this and I I guess that's what what my I don't know dislike of it is stemming from yeah I think it also tends to kind of eat away at even the movie's basic premise because they're establishing uh, that Liam Neeson is in control of this fear study, but in terms of what actually happens in the film, he does very little in service of it. Afterthought. Yeah, I mean, that one shot where you see them completing, like, I don't know, mazes or something. Like, yeah, first, it was with it, Lily it, Taylor it, is literally just doing, like, little workbook. Right, like. at first I'm literally like, what the, what the fuck is she doing? Like, is this some sort of, like, Sudoku adult coloring book bullshit that she finds calming? And it's like, oh no, Liam Neeson asked them to do this. Why did Liam Neeson ask them to do this? What does this help them learn? How does this help your fear study? I don't know. The fear study matters 
matters so little. Like you think, I would think it would be perfectly fine to throw. I mean, not perfectly fine. I mean, you talk about the ethics of what he's doing a whole other time. But like, which is, by the way, I just want to say is nuts. Yeah, it's it's unethical. No, he he has tenure. What can I say? They're not going to stop him at this point. But I think it would be perfectly quote unquote fine to throw these people into a spooky house and like and like and let's watch the sparks fly. Just see what happens now. (laughs) But he's like ostensibly still doing things to them, where he's making them go through the study. And I think if it's supposed to be some sort of insomnia study, you just sort of I don't know have them do tasks that somehow relate to their insomnia or something maybe I don't know I don't know what those mazes have to do with insomnia at the end of the day or like spend time actually psychoanalyzing them which he does not at all yeah I I feel like you should have a lot more questions about what this guy is actually doing than these characters seem to have no they only they really just have him on that fucking recorder like once or twice yeah where you get him like monologuing yeah which is like uh, they're exhibiting classic signs of trauma I feel like there was maybe an attempt to try to hold you in some amount of like uncertainty when um because Liam Neeson does have like a very weirdly calm reaction to the Welcome Home Eleanor fight where they like see it painted over well, the painting. I guess he's convinced that someone else did it. Yeah. Like, I'm surprised he isn't at that point when it becomes kind of obvious that no one has done it, that he isn't like, well, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Right, 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 right. It is also funny to see how instantly everyone's like, it's you! <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, I, I do like, I think it's Theo. She's like, yeah, Luke Wilson, was this one of your bad jokes or something? Like, first of all, we've never seen him tell a joke. She's like, or, like, or like your sense of humor. Is this your sick sense of humor again? Like, and which we've like, never I seen this really before. And maybe this yeah. is your idea of art, Theo, because she's an artist. And then all of a sudden, like, maybe Nell did it herself. And she's like, like, okay, like, let's like, let's like stop pointing dead. fingers for Two a minute. Days ago. Yeah. <laughs> Like, let, let's just, like, I don't know, like, calmly yeah, sit so. down and discuss what we think. Like, immediately, whenever someone's like, was it you? They're like, it wasn't me! How dare you assume it was me! Uh, so accusing Nell is extra dumb because she's just, like, a shaking leaf of a human all yeah. the time that I'm like, I don't see her as someone who would do that. I don't see Nell as someone who's capable of holding a brush. <laughs> so there's, like, a... A sketch on a Mitchell and Webb look uh, called Lazy Writers, a recurring sketch, which is like these two lazy TV writers talking about how they like didn't want to do any of the research to come up with like the medical jargon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now they're just these like, two slobs. And that's the vibe I get from ne- Liam Neeson's character in this movie. Like, <laughs> they just have like a couple token scenes of him spouting out shit like the mogul reliability <laughs> skill. And like so funny. classic signs of trauma, which is like, I don't understand why that word like again I think they're just using psycho babble words like yeah if it's spoken by an authoritarian figure you're like yeah. ah yes the funny thing about, about it to me is they they're invoking all of that stuff right but it has very little to do with the events of the film yeah like, well I guess he, I guess I mean he's just clearly talking out of his ass because like they're exhibiting all that shit because it's actually happening right. not because of his fucking study right so really they're this was all for naught wasn't ghosts. it yeah so <laughs> there goes your funding nothing fucks up a fear study like actual fucking ghosts <laughs> spooking you huh <laughs> I think, actually, I, I've just been sort of thinking a little bit about what you had said in the beginning, Lee, when you are talking about how this doesn't entirely work for you as a concept because of, like, the scenes where you see creepy goop happening yeah. to her. I feel like, for me, it would be okay if it happened more consistently from the get-go. I feel like if it happened to more than Eleanor, I think because of the fact that the movie posits, seems to be positing, at least, that this is happening exclusively to Eleanor, mm-hmm. for the most part, yeah. up until toward the end. Yes, you could watch this movie for 70% of the runtime and be like, is this really happening to her, or is she just seeing these things? And then all of a sudden to like go full swing into like, nope, the bed's a monster <laughs> and he's coming out of the glass and there are creepy eyes that it's just sort of like, oh, okay. Well, what I, I think I brought up a different point the first time we watched this, mm-hmm. which is like, 
if haunted houses all work like this in movies, like, they're one and done. Because there's <laughs> only, the pet can only transform into a cage one time, and then it has to, like, what, repair itself? Yeah. Or move itself back? Because they fucking smash the bed up. Like, when the chandelier falls in a haunted house, like, who's gonna... F- is the, is the house gonna make the a new chandelier? It, yeah, pulls it back up, I guess. And fix the broken crystals? Like, what's it gonna do? Like, that's what I don't get in all these situations where the haunted house is, like, actually fucking doing physical shit like that. Right. Yeah, I guess it's just, it's just an issue of, like, how much suspension of disbelief you have for this sort of thing, right? Like, if, if you're going to literally ask, like, <laughs> how are you still standing after doing this shit? Yeah. And it's like, that, like, well, if, no, it doesn't work. If, as Mrs. what's or not implies, this is like, <laughs> you know, this house does do shit all of the time, like, why isn't it torn to shreds already? Right, exactly. I have a lot of questions about her as a character. Would you like, <laughs> hasn't done this to her? And that's why she's, like, this crusty old I, New England stereotype? Maybe, like, she and Bruce Stern are both just, like, two whacked out to be affected by it. Well, that's the thing. They must know something. And the right. people in the town that won't go in it was six dark, mile radius night, yeah. of the house but, in the night of the dark. Yeah. They must know something. But that town is the closest the, they'll come. What they'll the come. Do they know? No, I right, no, know. Sir. Exactly. It's so unclear. I feel like we're moving into characters now, which is fine. Yeah, let's just do it. Yeah. So, like, I, we'll start with, what the fuck were their names again? Nell? Dudley or no, something? The Dudleys. Yes, that's yeah. the Dudleys. Thing. We'll start with the most consequential characters, the Dudleys. These are the caretakers. That, like, one's, I guess, the groundskeeper and she's the caretaker because she mentioned it's not fun when you have to dust every single yeah. fucking chandelier in the house or whatever the fuck it is. They're there, I guess, regularly, right? I mean, like, the, the lawns they look good. Keep it up. Yeah, so I guess you must be doing... Although there's no scenes. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like, why are they here all the time? There's also yeah. no scenes of them being in the house during the daytime as That's the what I think is weird, too. It's like they leave, and the implication is that they're going to come back in the daytime to, like, she says something about how, like, dinner will be ready by four o'clock. I'll have it on the we table and I split. We don't really get a dinner scene. Well, they never come back. That's what I'm saying. You never see them again. You right. think that, like, the thing to do again would be to have them come back and then she's like interestingly some weird shit happened to me and then Mrs. Dudley's like oh let me give you some like unhelpful advice and be a crusty old bitch <laughs> right. yeah but that never really happens these characters don't seem to matter but again going back to it like why are they there like what? who's paying these people what the fuck do they know about the house? Right. And why aren't they... Telling anyone. More vocal about, right. like, hey, this is some really fucked up shit going They're, they're like here. your classic, like, horror character I, enigma supporting characters who, like, yeah. show up and like, I, I won't tell you what's going they're, on in the old house, but suffice to say, it's nothing good. They're both giving two different weird housekeeper performances because Bruce Stern is just sort of, like, an oddball, I guess, but... Um, he's, like, a bit of the Marion Selby is... Shining, right? A little bit. A little. But Marion Selby is, just seems to completely know what's going on, and it also seems like she stood in front of a mirror and rehearsed a, like, spiel... And I, I really like that where it's clearly this odd-mannered spiel that she's giving to Lily Taylor about they won't come any closer to yeah, the house. No one, no one yeah, no You have to wonder how many times she's dark. given this speech. Yeah. I love that when she's then giving it again to Kevin Zeta-Jones, Lily Taylor is like, no one would come. Yeah, she's no like, well, here She's you. basically like saying the lines that Mary Saldi's supposed to be saying. And every now and then Mary Saldi shoots her a look like, what? what? Like, that, that's my line. You're stepping on my lines. There's so many questions about those characters. Who they are, what they know, why are they here, what are they doing? That I, I just have to wonder, like, why they're here in the story to begin with. Like, what they, do you... They show up the day after to the car crash into the gate, and they look genuinely stumped as if they had no idea something like this could happen. Like, clearly you did! Well, and that's the thing that bugs me, too, <laughs> is that they do seem genuinely sort of shocked. And then yeah. Marion Saudis is like, oh, fucking city slickers. We're just, okay, so are you terrified by the fact that, some, like, two people are dead and 
someone drove a car through the gate, or are you this glib old bitch? Like, ah, oh, I've seen it all before. This is exactly what I expected. Yeah, so like, pick one. Yeah, right. Like, like pick a lane and stick with it. Yeah. I, I just genuinely wonder sort of why these characters are here, what they have to serve the story. Like, it feels like they're there because they're there in the original story. And so therefore, like, yeah, you're going to have the creepy housekeeper show up. But like, to what effect? None. 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 Effect. Yeah. Just for weirdness. But then they point out the weirdness. I actually did kind of enjoy that they lampshade how well at least Marion Sylvie's was. That was that was fun. We don't get that again in the movie, but no. it was fun. Yeah, she is. Uh, do we want to work our way up the food chain? So who's next? Like the two dummies the who... two people who piss off? Yeah, like yeah. the, the, the well, one who... that was sort of pointless, right? We're introduced to the, to the female uh, research assistant who seems to be handling some part of the selection process. Right. And then she shows up with them imme- and immediately has, I guess, is some kind of psychic vibe. Yeah. Um, starts freaking out. A harpsichord just unleashes The string just string. Like breaks and hits her in the eye. Hits her in the eye. And they and try then, and put a shot glass. <laughs> now, yeah. it's, now it's like, put a glass on your eye. That'll keep the blood out. Which I thought that was such a weird thing to do. And I, I could have sworn they must have been setting something up, but they weren't. Right. Well, what my question is, which I alluded to earlier, is I don't know what her role is that she's playing here, right? Is she showing up and is she trying to freak them all out by being like, I feel something strange about this house? Or is she like genuinely having this sort of little breakdown? Because she knows what's going on, mm-hmm. right? She's an assistant. He explicitly must have told her, like, mm-hmm. this is what's happening. So did he tell her, like, show up here and be a fucking weirdo? Or did she just show up there and start freaking out immediately? I, you know what? You're no doing a classic Lee supposition where you're like... If, you're like imagining a yeah. better version of the movie where she was putting an act on and he right. went wrong. But the truth is, the movie doesn't fucking have a clue what no. she is either. No, I agree. I think in, in terms of the movie, you have to assume that she's not putting an act on. No, that she shows up and starts, right, starts flipping out for whatever reason. It's hitting out of the harpsichord. And the guy that she's with takes her away and they disappear out of the movie never to be seen again. And yeah. from a narrative perspective, both neither of the assistants serve a purpose. No, they don't. You feel like it's something that By should the way, sort of... Until the Wikipedia summary, I didn't know he was an assistant. I thought he was another person in the study. Yeah, I know, because you don't know who he is. You I don't know what his deal is. like, at the very least, if the character's in a movie, I should understand who they what are. What his deal is? Fuck off forever. Right, exactly. Um, I think maybe the next person we should talk about is uh, Owen Wilson? Luke Wilson? Luke Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson he plays Luke. Luke. He plays a character named Luke. <laughs> What a bit of fun inside baseball. Well, uh, to be fair, his character... His, his character was named Luke in the yeah. book. Yeah. It wasn't um, like... <laughs> it's not like they decided to be cute. To, shoot, yeah. to, to make him confused. Like, <laughs> Although I'm sure they did. I'm sure his head was just I mean, spinning the entire it time. Is, yeah. It is weird that in the book, I, I, I think you were saying that he was... He's like the inheritor of the estate in the book. Yeah. In this movie, I don't know what he is. He, he doesn't have a backstory. Right. So we know or, that he's there for the, again, supposed sleep study that Nell and Theo are there for but like we don't know anything about him at least when Theo shows up she's like hi I wear ridiculous coats and I'm an artist in New York City and also I'm bi polyamorous we know that he scored high on the mobile reliability that's right (laughs) he's very reliable that was one of those so funny like we're just gonna say random psychobabble shit right make it sound legit but no he has given the least uh, character. He, right. He likes to throw a baseball around. Yeah. This is when he can't sleep. And we don't really get what that's for either because um, whenever he's he's wandering through the halls, he can't sleep. He's like tossing a baseball back and forth. He accidentally runs into Liam Neeson and he's immediately like, oh, oh, oh you scared me. Oh, oh, what'd you, you do? do you don't just, oh, what the fuck? You don't just do that. It's just sort of like you're, you're yeah. overreacting. You come on the, it's like on the verge of learning something interesting. About right. And it feels like you're, you're overreacting to the point that this will pay off later in some way. That we'll find out like why you're so easily freaked out by someone glazing you as they're walking or grazing you rather yeah. as they're walking by you in the hallway it's just sort of like 
Doesn't matter. He was freaked out. What of it? Who cares? So we know nothing about his character, really. What he's doing there, why it really matters. At least, like, we get that he's kind of horny for Catherine Zeta-Jones a little bit, I guess. That's yeah, I guess. And I, I suppose he's also supposed to be some kind of, like, trickster or jokester. A trickster god, yeah. Because what people say about People's him. reaction, yeah. the, an informed trait about him is that he is some kind of... Uh, he has a sense of humor. Right. He's a devil-may-care kind of... Right. But, and I Tell guess there's, there's, there. there is, like, weak moments where he's sort of maybe, like... Like saying something that sounds kind of clever, at least it's delivered like a joke, but he doesn't say or do anything. Well, he doesn't seem like that uh, bad, which is why I think it's weird that Catherine Zeta-Jones is me like, is this one of your sick, sick jokes? jokes? But like, well, well, he's like, done nothing to offend. Early on, Liam Neeson plants the story with pa- uh, Owen Wilson. Mm-hmm. And tells him, that's right. tell he like, everyone else. Right, right, yeah. But he, like, knows because of the reliability scale yeah. that Owen Wilson is immediately going Good to tell right, the two right. ladies. So I feel like he's supposed to be the control... This is this is at least a position. Mm-hmm. That he's supposed to be the control because he's not as fear-ish. Oh, maybe. But he knows that if everyone goes to bed with this information, that the two ladies will start freaking out. That's true. And he'll be the control. Talk about that's how, valid. like, the insomnia of it all also is sort of meaningless. Is it just why. a reason for everyone to I be awake at night? I think it's because it's a cover story. It's the cover thing. It is. It's, like it's, about, it's not really about insomnia, but because they all have insomnia and they can all talk about it, they can believe that they're all here for insomnia. I see. Yeah, it, it's... No, exactly what you said. I, I Don't we see Catherine Zeta-Jones, like, sleeping at various points? I just feel like the insomnia doesn't seem to affect no, the characters as much as you'd think it She kind of flops around in bed, but I don't think we ever see oh, her sleep. Oh, sleep on the job, doesn't yeah, he? He does. That's funny. When the yeah. fucking bed comes Right, when his one role is to like, hey, keep an eye on Nell, make sure she doesn't get attacked by a bed. He's just immediately out. Oops. Um, I think the hilariously named Dr. Marrow could come next. Well, one more note about Old Nelson. The only other thing we know about him is that he does really go to a odd 11, 3 to 11 place at the end where he's like, we'll burn the house down! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he gets killed by the house in the That's fireplace. right, and then it knocks his head off. I guess he had to step over the line for the house so, to kill him. yeah, despite the fact that he seemingly was, like, not as into the idea of the house being haunted, when as soon as, like, they see shit go down, he's the one that loses his shit fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if maybe that's sort of... I don't know, like a ghost of a character trait that he's prone to overreaction, maybe, yeah. right? Like, and that's what you're trying to convey. Because first he crosses the car into the gate. Right. And then he's like, fuck it, we'll burn the house. Yeah, down. when you've gone from like one to ten immediately. And then he dies. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Then the house kills Anyway, him. Dr. Bone Marrow. Dr. Yeah, Bone Marrow. Bone Marrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 okay, so it's there again, similar to uh, Luke, very little to this character. Well, he's, he's running like skeptic. That's yeah. you got the you've got an archetype. Right, he, he's yeah, unequivocally sure that this house is not haunted, it's just a study on fear, the concept it, of fear. And he explains this, I guess, in the beginning, where he's talking about how like we have like these these fear, like these fears of things that continue to affect us throughout our lives in ways that don't seem to help us. So, why are we afraid of these things, I guess? And that's Kind of logical. But, like, a fifth grader or me could tell you that we are afraid of things so that they don't hurt us and kill us. Like, right. we're afraid of fire because it hurts us. It's an instinct. It's, it is it, it is useful. Right. And, again, it's like, and you're afraid of the dark because the dark is the unknown, yeah. right? So, like, if that's why 
you go to a creepy old house, like you're you're afraid because it's a big creepy house. You don't know what's there. You don't assume it's going to be ghosts necessarily, but nonetheless, it would wouldn't it have been interesting if he if he had a fear himself and he was driven to understand why he was afraid? You know what I mean? He seems to have a uh, very large education and mm-hmm. not understand a very basic fact about humanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, I love his stupid conversation with I guess his boss at the beginning of the movie, where he was just he's basically. Like, let me let me do this fear study. And the guy is like, Oh, we can't study fear, man. That's gonna be too difficult. Are you sure you could let and like their conversation is so much about nothing. They never actually talk about what he's going to do. They bring up the ethics in that point, too. Yeah, he's basically just there, I think, to I I guess show the potential ethical pitfalls of the study, but then they don't really matter. Mm -hmm. I think it's a clumsy way of telling the audience what's going down. Yeah, I guess it's just supposed to indicate like Liam Neeson is a potentially unethical or he's at least flexible ethics. Totally gray, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, I, I. Yes, but I feel like that's not really still his character, you know? Like, yeah. his character doesn't seem like he, he... He does seem like, for the most part, like, he's willing to sort of call it a day whenever things escalate too much. You know, it's not like he is the quote-unquote villain of this piece. What, what is his character? How is this informing his character? Who is he really? What is this hoping to show? Unclear. I don't know. Couldn't tell you. He doesn't have enough. Like I said, it's a supposition. It would have been interesting if he had a deep motivation beyond for science, right. for understanding fear, <laughs> right. if fear had consumed the, his life or the life of someone close to him. But we don't, yeah. we don't see that. Well, we don't see that, and that's not, it's not part of his character. Yeah, I mean, it's movie. clearly not. Yeah. But... Uh, that would have that, that's an example of something that maybe would have enhanced that right. character. But all we really get is just the sort of like bland two D. Like this is the skeptic who learns that there are ghosts. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Really, like yes, he learns that there are get. some things his science cannot explain. So there. Yeah. Sort of like how um, you guys remember the happening where uh, basically still never seen it. But... Mark Wahlberg is a science teacher in that, by the way. Yeah. And he literally told his students in like a scene very close to the beginning of the movie, like. There are just something science can't explain. It's called an act of God. I was like, the fuck? It's oh, public school for you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Teaching somewhere in the South, I bet. I it's so funny to even a science teacher would be like, yep, we're just going to attribute some things to If God. you don't know what it is, uh, God did. Do we want to talk about our protagonist? Or Theo? We skipped oh, Theo. Oh, Theo. Yeah. I'm sorry, Theo. I should. You want to talk about Theo all yeah. night long. Yeah. I mean, she is this movie's ridiculous woman in a ridiculous dress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she basically announces herself as such when she comes in because she's like, Hi, I'm Theo. I have a lot of bags. <laughs> I'm nuts. I've got a lot of dresses. <laughs> she, I've got a big coat. These are crazy boots. Also, every time she takes a layer off, the camera just like racks to Catherine Zeta-Jones' chest multiple times. We're getting a zoom in on like, this is what her bodice is like right now. Um, she's like, because she's like shedding layers as she's just casually mentioning to um, uh, Lily Taylor, like, yeah, well, my, my girlfriend, da, 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 but my boyfriend, da, 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 and we're supposed to be like, wow, what a worldly <laughs> artist, artistic lady. Yes. Not only is she bi, she's poly as well. Um, we, I she's like from New York City. We were kind of leaning into it as part of a bit, but I genuinely believe that she is hitting on Lily Taylor throughout this movie. Oh, she is. And I mean, I, I think... I don't want to outright say that I'm sure, I'm sure the director told her to do that, but I mean, she clearly gets that there is something here. Right. Yeah. I, I believe, I feel like from what I, I was trying to look online, because, so, okay, just real quick about this movie. This is a movie that was kind of in development hell for quite a while. There was a version where Stephen King was writing the screenplay. That didn't happen. That's what he used for Rose Red as the basis, so that's sort of what that came from. Uh, th- I feel like that this was, again, something that had sort of, even when it was in production, kept kind of getting shunted around and, like, rewritten and reshot. 
Uh, Steven Spielberg was the was a producer on this movie. It was rumored that he had reshot some of this and then kind of disavowed it at the end when he was just like, you know what, this fucking sucks. Can't do anything for it. Sorry. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that there is a fair amount of this movie that was either edited out or shot and then on the cutting room floor. And my understanding from some of that is that there are more explicit scenes between Catherine Zeta-Jones oh, and um, Lily, Taylor. Lily Taylor. Yes, where Catherine Zeta-Jones is like sort of very, very, very clearly coming, coming on to her. And I don't know if, you know, she reciprocated or if she was no. I mean, as it stands in the movie, Nell is kind of asexual for the yes. most part. Like, she seems to care not only for anything. But I think in a stupid old-fashioned sense of like, oh, she's a prude. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. What I think it is, it's just that being asleep to her mother has like worn yeah. down her sex right. drive. And yeah. she, she cares not for the touch of man anymore. Well, she well I feel like she's a little like repressed. Because well, right, because when... there's the weird shot where Catherine Zeta-Jones like goes to like move her hair out of her and she like jumps up right. in the air. Yeah. But, but no, when Zeta-Jones is like undressing, she's like, oh, I must turn away. Yeah, I yeah. get a woman undressing. Yes, yes. Lest I look at someone change their clothing. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't... I think I, it would when I see those scenes left in to see if maybe there was like, a subplot with like Lily Taylor like doing something else aside from like ah, I know, somehow I, I doubt it and I think it was we, just there as like titillation we're not talking about her yet but I fucking hate <laughs> Nell a lot and I hate what she represents I think at the end of the day uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones's character represents something that could have been interesting uh, potentially but it's as is I think it's a very kind of straight male screenwriter thing of like she's just yeah. this sexy yeah. firecracker character and it, I see what you were saying earlier where you, you said you, you sort of vaguely invoked manic pixie dream girl but she is like the sexic pixie dream girl right. <laughs> she's like what every guy right she's, she's a guy's fantasy thinks that yeah. a sexy lady is like right, Ooh, right. she's got a girlfriend and boyfriend right. she's, she's so cosmopolitan she looks fantastic yeah. well and Brendan brought this up too it's also it feels pretty much in line with a very 90s idea of what bisexuality is where it's right. like where it's like you're it's not, a man it's not, and a woman right. you're not bisexual you're actively like dating both right because like you can't choose. Bisexuals can't choose. It's all, I think, definitely put in there for just titillation. You have a hot lady who's, ooh, bisexual, and that's, like, very crazy at that point, but... Yeah, I mean, I obviously in different hands that could have been interesting, but it, it is a bummer as like kind of an asses and seats move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Nell. <laughs> Last we got Nell. I mean, she's like, awful. She, she's a lot of um, shaking and quivering, and a lot of- yeah, I know that you guys want to defend Lily Taylor, but I don't. I can't on the merit of having not seen her anything else because mm-hmm. I hate her acting in this movie. Well, here's what I'll say. Maybe I just hate her character, but I hate it. I hate I, looking at her. I would like to amend my thing of like, I I think she is committing in a more serious way. I think Lily Taylor, who has been good in other things, I think is making the mistake of taking this role too seriously. And she takes it in a direction that is, I think, a lot more naturalistic than pretty much anyone else in the movie. Um, I would describe it as modeling. Yeah, well, so what I would say is I think she starts in a good place. And then as the movie ratchets up, she kind of just becomes... this like... Yeah. Right. And I mean, and also, and again, it's not, she's not done any help from the script of the direction where like for the last half hour of the movie, it's just her and her nightgown running through. I'll be like, what do you want? What are you trying to say? <laughs> like, Ukraine, what'd you do to the child of Ukraine? And it is delivered in that sort of voice where it's, it's like not her. It, also, or when uh, Liam Neeson. It sounds Neeson, like a, a guy trying to do a woman voice. Or it sounds like a guy doing Julie Haggerty. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a guy, it's like a guy putting on a high register and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. 
I love the scene of emotion um, or passion there. Yeah. Of uh, Liam Neeson trying to get up those uh, that like spiral staircase in the greenhouse and as it's like falling apart. And I love that he's like, "Help!" And she goes, "No, I can't. I have to go save the children." (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing that I think like really sort of clinches is her descent into like utter crap at the end is when she's talking to the ghost of Hugh Crane. She's like, "No, you don't go to purgatory, Hugh Crane. You go to hell." And she delivers it in that way too, where just it's not spoken the way a human would speak this way or like a person in the situation. Just as a character and like the character's journey and arc, she starts in a place where I feel like the performance lets you know that this character is chafing against the idea that they've just spent 11 years with someone who maybe kind of took them for granted, it sounds like. Um, Because like, I don't see another reason why they would show you that moment of her acting with like such almost like panic uh, when like the kid in the very beginning is like smacks the cane against the door and it was like, get up, I have to pee. And she's like, <gasps> in the very beginning when I her sister like, and the husband seems, are visiting. Yeah. I don't remember her like freaking out so much as it's just her. Like, I guess, I mean, I might be like that. I, I realize well, I'm doing a visual the point is, It seemed like she was in a place where she was just done with that. So I think it's very weird that the arc of this movie is come to the haunted house and then just become another caretaker. Well, I think she doesn't, she doesn't want that, but I mean, again, this is bad acting. I think that the movie is maybe trying to imply because she hasn't during the dinner, she, she doesn't know how to live any other way after 10 years. If it had been a written movie, it's like the choice where, like, you know, you want to get out of it, but because you don't know how to do something new, you revert to doing what you know. That maybe is what they're doing there, but it's bad, it's bad acting. It is. But I will say that and directing. the only time our character felt interesting and good. Uh, was in the early scenes before spooky shit happens when they're in the big spooky house and she's more amused by it and is like imitating the spooky lady ooh in the dark in the night and she's like ooh it's this creepy calliope room Mm -hmm. calliope room and uh, the fucking books are oh this is fun we'll hop over the books in the river it's the only part of the movie where she shows any actual like joy or anything other than like I don't know sort of confusion and terror like you know kind of like morbidly interested which is an interesting character trait from this very puritanical like so far yeah. character where she's like ooh I'm into ghosts well, and so fun and exciting she like had all that information about that purgatory relief on the door and it seemed like it was going to be a thing of like yeah she's weird but she has this like odd interest in this like weird shit yeah but again it falls by the wayside once the kids come into play and then play. they fucking strip her down into this like white virginic dress and then right. take her into this like mother this, figure yeah, this mother, mother this picture of sainthood who's yeah. then literally yeah. killed after performing her motherly duties right and then she gets to go on and be a heaven mom <laughs> so nuts a ghost mom yeah so nuts ghost mom better than most mom and honestly the tone of it is I feel almost to make us feel like oh, the right thing yeah I know this woman did the thing that a woman is supposed to do good for you woman. Whereas I'm just like, we started in a place that I felt was very clear in showing us how bad of a situation this was for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, because at the end of this movie you're clearly supposed to feel like Ah, it's a good thing. Like, Eleanor did a good thing, and now she can be at peace. But, like, she died doing the thing that she's been doing for, like, most of her life. She died basically taking care of someone. And it seems, from what you get earlier on, that she kind of resents the fact that she had to take care of people. I think it would be one thing if, like, part of her personality was Eleanor loves to take care of people. That's what she does. And, like, maybe taking care of her mother wasn't a burden. Maybe her mother wasn't this, like, crazy old psycho bitty. Maybe her mother was, like, just this poor invalid woman. And Eleanor was, like, totally cool with giving up a decade of her life to take care of this woman. And then once her mom dies, just 
sister's like, all right, get the fuck out. We're selling her barn. And Eleanor's like, uh, what? Like, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, what? You're doing what now? And so, like, maybe the fact that she's taken to this whole new place where she realizes, yes, this is my identity. Like, this is a house. I have a place where I belong. I can take care of these children. Like, this is who I am. But instead, it's really just sort of, she fucking hated taking care of her mean old mom, and now she's got to take <laughs> a bunch of baby ghosts. Yeah. Yep. Like, as in life's so in-depth, Eleanor. <laughs> yeah. This is all you deserve. It, I just find that to be a bummer of an ending, and it doesn't seem like the movie even realizes how weird it, w- it was to go in that direction, mm-hmm. and maybe even how contradictory it is to its own setup. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say real quick, how does look? Bad. Bad. Yeah. Um, well, Terrible. Well, the, the, the actual sets themselves, I think the worst you could say is that maybe some of them are kind of overdone, and obviously when you're in this place, you're like, okay, like no house exists that okay, looks like I, this. Okay, yeah. on the house, it doesn't look like a house, it looks like a castle. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it uh, has no sense of space because we never really see how the rooms and the floors right. that is That is my biggest issue, is that <laughs> yeah. I... It might be intentional. You might be supposed to be disoriented by this space, which I guess is fine. But, like, for me as a viewer, I need to know where these rooms are and how they connect to each other. Yeah. It, it just it bugs me so much. Like, an upper hallway that curves, which is weird, because how the fuck is this whole house built on a curve? Right. And you see, like, the big lobby and the grand staircase and the purgatory door. But then I couldn't tell you. And, and apparently and the purgatory door. somewhere else door, is, a, is a calliope room. Right. Apparently the purgatory door is the front door. No. There's, like, the front door. There's, like, an entry door. Then there's the purgatory door, which leads like that main room with the staircase. Oh, I got it. So then the purgatory door is essentially bridging the foyer to the main room. Yeah. Yeah. It fucking bugs me so much that there's so much (laughs) there's so much emphasis placed upon this purgatory door. It's like if you stand before this door, you will be judged. Like, why does the door fucking matter? The door like if the door isn't going someplace that matters, you know, it's just like it's a fucking door, right? If you're going to invoke purgatory, I guess it was I guess that's meant to suggest that Crane and also the children are being kept in some form of purgatory because they haven't been able to move on. Okay. But that's not, like, thematically relevant to anything in this movie. So it, that's that's honestly the, the pattern I think we keep coming back to is it doesn't use any of the tools Which that is like, it also, establishes. Is it connecting to any so of anyone who builds a purgatory door in their house is probably not a good not well. yeah. man, right? Yeah, right. Like, it's probably a creep. Probably a creep. You're not asking for good things if yeah. you do this. Um, and then I couldn't tell you where the calliope room is. Well, so the thing that I do sort of love about the leap to the calliope room is when the way they get there, I guess, is first they go down that weird hallway where it's, like, wet. It's like a little river runs through it and there are, like, I guess, concrete books on the mm-hmm, floor yeah. and you like, ha ha, we're jumping on this fine. Oh, that was cute. And then you go to the this hallway where it looks like it's mirrors on both sides, but it's not mirrors. Like some of them, I guess, are just identical hallways next to it. So, like you can step through what you assume to be floor to ceiling mirror. The thing that I, I, I love is a mirror, but the mirror is like a farther back. Right. Yeah. There are some mirrors to this, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. also just like it's also designed to look like mirror. Which also, again, sign number two. Like this guy is not like a sweet old man. This guy's a fucking nutcase. What I do love though is that there are mops leading up against the like what is not a mirror and another mop on the other side of what is not a mirror. So it looks like a mirror. You have to love the idea that like Mrs. Dudley was going through and be like, oh shit, gotta leave two mops here just so that when they walk by real quick, they'll think it's a mirror. But that looks okay. They'll go through. They will. I just love the fact that like someone had to go through and make sure that like I guess we got two mops leaning up against each other on one side. It's gonna look great. Yeah. Like who is the person who is doing this? No idea. I do love the look of the house, though. I think that the general visuals of the house itself, as they are on a set, are pretty neat, I think. It's so fun. one thing that I enjoy. But I don't... It doesn't look like a home. It doesn't oh, yeah, look cozy. No. And anyone that takes one look at that house would not believe any nice thing said about who no. there. Oh, yeah, no, It's agreed. a creepy-ass house. Right. It's cool in some respects. I, I agree with you. It's really difficult for me to believe, like... 
especially when like you hear that story of like he just went to fill the house with the laughter of children. I'm like, that's the no personality here. Yeah, and I, I guess going off of that too, it's hard to feel that Eleanor would view this house as home. You know, yeah. like what would she find reassuring about this creepy, bizarre? Yeah, just ramble of a house. Yeah. Looking to score real quick. Yeah. Uh, it was Jerry Goldsmith who did the score. Jerry Goldsmith is a respected and esteemed composer. He's done a lot of work throughout his life. He did the score to Poltergeist, which we were talking about briefly earlier. What do you think about this? You know, I don't think it's bad. I think toward the end of his life, I don't know if it was that he was on autopilot or it's just that he wasn't getting work that he found interesting and therefore wasn't committing to it. I think this is a little bit better than most of what he was doing. There's, Around that time. Yeah, there, there are like definite themes to this movie. There's like an Eleanor theme and there's like a House or Hugh Crane theme. I'm not really sure what it is. It's just something that I was sort of listening to more this time. So I, I think it's generally solid. The fucking Calliope thing, though, is the thing that I find jarringly strange about this movie. <sighs> It's, it's so, I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of what he was doing for Poltergeist because Poltergeist has like this main theme that's sort of sung over the end credits where it's just like children going like, la, 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 la. I feel like he's kind of trying to do that with the Calliope, but the Calliope is just so uncommonly bizarre. It's that, like, so loud it's, and right. in your face and sudden. Right, and it's not even that it's like, it's not creepy, it's just jarringly strange, you know? I like, think he was maybe trying to invoke one of those harder things of when it's like the very jubilant or positive song, but in a creepy context or space. Yeah, I, I guess so. It's just, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily the fact that it's a calliope itself or that it's like almost close to this kind of like oompa sort of German <laughs> style music going on beneath yeah. it. It just doesn't quite work for me. And it's also annoying that that is the first music that you hear as the end credits roll. You would think that you're trying to cultivate a sort of mystique as the movie ends and be like, yeah. oh, yes. Call people. back to the... Right, 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 right. You're like, oh, people have died. Like, this is a bad thing. Yeah. Like, the spook guild has all of a sudden, it's like carnival music. I don't know if that was a director's choice. Tropey. Or, it's very it horror yes. tropey of, like, clowns are spooky. Right, yeah, it is. I mean, to be fair, also, this movie in general just fucking revels in its crappy horror tropes, right? Like, yeah. You would think that one thing to do with the children would just be to have them presented as actual children, but they're like, Eleanor, find us. It's Eleanor, so funny. And they're always just, like, shades traveling on curtains. Right, yeah, yeah. It's just like, it would be one thing if it was, like, an actual child who showed them was like, Eleanor, Please, you have to find it. And so it's just like, my eyes rolled so much when we actually got that kid ghost that flies through Eleanor close-ish to the end. Because mm -hmm. it goes through the curtain first and it's like literally talking to her. And I'm yeah. like, what are we doing at this point? Yeah, like you've given up. We've all given up. Right. Just keep going. Get to the end. Speaking of the end. I have a, I'm ready with my fix. Yeah, go ahead. Go you want to go first? Yeah. Go first. So in my fix... The old house has just, over the course of time, been deeded to the local university, where Liam Neeson is a some kind of you know psychologist or professor. Um, he really wants to uh, do this study about fear. Um, he's he maybe has a very good reputation at the school as someone who's like extremely ethical, but this is sort of surprising to his direct staff. Um, this study is also maybe kind of coinciding with his, him generally acting a little bit more strangely. What I want to have happen, basically, that Crane has found, Crane's ghost has found a way to um, influence Liam Neeson to have this study at the house as a pretense for getting um, the descendants of Crane's children that ended up surviving him somehow as a way to try to, like take them, essentially, um, with the idea that he doesn't feel he can move on until he's, like, taken their spirits, their soul's rightful place in the house 
to be like haunted there. So like each person who has come into the house ostensibly for the study was reached out to specifically without their knowing uh, their relation to Crane. I would want there to be a lot more of each of these people kind of having some kind of trauma or issue that they're working through as a result of this history which they don't really know about but that they each as they're spending time in the house are realizing their personal connection to that and that is becoming very spooky and i would also kind of love for it each character to almost have this moment of like oh my god you guys know this is what's going on and here's my connection to it i think definitely you would need to come up with some kind of resolution for each of the other people but i think that's pretty doable especially once you kind of decide like what is their thing what is their their conflict that they're trying to work out through being here. I at least know that for the Eleanor character, I think her story should be about realizing who she is outside of the identity of caretaker. Mm -hmm. I think we should start with her getting kicked out of the apartment by like a careless sister, but maybe one who is sort of for the audience's sake, letting us know that maybe Eleanor has always been somewhat of a pushover, but has always been like there to care for those who really needed it. So what she realizes is that Crane is maybe using those spirits to try to tempt her into becoming a permanent fixture of the house, but she realizes that she needs to go off and live her own life. Um, I'm not sure how you deal with all of these ghosts. I think maybe it would have more to do with each of these people realizing their connection to it and sort of exercising their personal demons in that way. I have something. All right, what's your something? So <laughs> I think I want the two main characters to be Dr. Bone Arrow and uh, Eleanor, uh-huh. but at the last second I'm going to keep Eleanor. I was tempted to throw Melanor off because I hate her so much. Um, but I can just fix her, I guess. So I think I will keep the fear study pretext. I think that Dr. Bone Marrow is obsessed with fear because he is the person that inherited this house, that he mm-hmm. either grew up in it or has a strong connection to it. Um, and he, he got spooked real bad as a kid and is like remains haunted by something because of growing up under the specter of this house. And the story remains the same of, like, there's a bunch of spooky ghost children who are terrified of the ghost of Ukraine, who I guess was some sort of monster in life. Probably add more definition there of how he was a monster and what he did. Uh, But the end result is a lot of kids died in this house um, that are mostly unknown about. Like, we don't really know that all these kids died in this house. And the kids died uh, in horrific fear of this father-ish figure, Hugh Crane, who did something horrible to them. Mm -hmm. And you get all these people there, um, and the two main characters we focus on are are Eleanor and Dr. Bone Marrow, and (laughs) I think that, like, there's a lot more actual discussion of fears mm-hmm. and like where what you're afraid of and what that comes from and Eleanor's fear is closely related to having to care for a sick mother for most of her life and not knowing what her life is outside of that but also like uh, you know just other fears related to like basically caring for like a, a spooky sick old person which is a, you know weird in itself and she's able to like cajole him into revealing some of his own fear. There is still, I think, a pretext that this is maybe not a fear study, or if it is a fear study, it's not like I didn't take you to my haunted house specifically for this. Uh, I took you to this house because it's a place that I have access to. Mm-hmm. There's definitely no ghosts here, right. but the ghosts affect them most of all because there are these children who are in need of someone to take care of them, and that that really cause uh, or that is really cloying to Nell in particular who's dealt with that yeah who's dealt with that and but Dr. Bone Marrow because he grew up in this house 
and maybe there's some sort of specter that he had to grow up under of this remaining like abuse or whatever the fuck happened to this house. And I want uh, the end to be that they sort of imagine that there's this like evil spirit of Ukraine, but there is no evil spirit of Ukraine. The children are so afraid of Ukraine that they are conjuring that there mm-hmm. is this evil thing haunting them and that appeasing the children's fear is what banishes the spirit. So the idea that like the horrible things done to them has left this specter, but it is just them. It's like a tulpa basically that they've created created, and that they have to like ease the spirit of, of the ghosts. And I want Nell to sort of like have that moment caught like inverse of what happens in the movie where she's like, I'm not going to like give up my life for this. I'm going to like, I, I, like I reject the notion that, that I have to like, you know, tether myself, tether myself to these people by reaching through to Dr. Bonnero, who maybe has the strongest connection to, like, the fear of this dude, is able to, like, you know, make them realize that, like, this guy can't hurt you anymore. Cool. I like that. That's my my thought. Uh, I've got two kind of half-assed ideas instead of one idea using my full ass. So, like, the first one, (laughs) I kind of alluded toward earlier the idea of Eleanor as being someone who cares for people. Like, this is what Eleanor's personality is. This is, like, her entire sense of self. Is that Eleanor is someone who has sort of, like, taken care of her mother for most of her life. And maybe, I think, once the mother dies, like, maybe the house is seized or something. Like, I don't know. Whatever it needs to take to get Eleanor out of this house. At that point, Eleanor finds out this this old hill house that the Crane family owns. She's somehow distantly related to them, and now this house has sort of fallen into her possession. And this is also kind of going to loosely tie in with the fact that there is some sort of, like, study going on there. So Eleanor basically is like, okay, like, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But I, I'll be a part of it, maybe. And then at the end of this, I'm going to take the house, and I, I guess that's where I'll live now. Yeah. And so the movie is basically going to be more of Eleanor kind of falling under the sway of the idea that, like, this house gives her a sense of belonging. This house gives her a sense of purpose. This is, like, what her home is. Like, she feels at home when she's at this house because the entire thing is that I kept having when watching this movie the first time. was like, how does someone, like, go to this house and be like, yes, I'm home now? <laughs> like, so, like, like I want to try and, like, build up this sense that, like, she feels she is home because partly because she has this connection distantly to the family and also partly because she starts to find out that there are um, ghosts in this house. And what she realizes at the end is that, yes, while she does have to be the one to sort of get rid of the ghost of Hugh Crane, what she does then instead of dying herself is that she's like, and I'm going to stay in this creepy house forever and take care of these children ghosts. And like, this is my family now. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be this creepy one who lives in a creepy house for the rest of my life and I am happy about it. Yeah. That, that's that's your one. The other one is going to be a bit more traditional in some senses. We had kind of talked about the idea while watching this is that there should be a bigger cast who are all getting sort of dispatched or killed off in various ways. And I think that's what this version is going to have. This version is going to focus more on the idea of Hugh Crane's having a daughter, which is something that happens, I believe, in the book and original movie is that he oh. has this daughter. So the story that they are sort of being told throughout this is that Hugh Crane has this daughter. He had a wife. Uh, the wife died during childbirth and the daughter is someone that, that he kind of did not have a great relationship with in life and then kind of regretted it and then like spent the rest of his life like miserable and alone in his house being like, oh, I lost my daughter. Like, what was me? How awful. And they're, as they're uncovering this throughout, they eventually sort of find the remains of the daughter left in the house and they're like, let's, let's put her in the mausoleum and everything's going to be okay. And then we find out like, oh, that's actually a bad thing. Ukraine was actually a jackass and the daughter wanted nothing more than to get away from him. Yeah. And like toward the end at some point, he kidnapped her, threw her in the nursery where she had grown up and imprisoned her in there. And so the fact that he has his daughter back now is actually very bad. And so right. it's just sort of 
rectifying the you know the errors that you've made and trying to undo this, realizing that you're trying to appease someone who's like not this like this saddled man like boohoo I lost my daughter woe is me, but he is this person who basically saw like the one last thing he had left to control and tried to grab control it. it. Go. Yeah, yeah, basically. So that is what the other version of it is. I haven't quite worked out the kinks to it, but it's a little bit more based around the idea that maybe they're seeing this ghost, this like miserable female ghost, and they realize that like oh she's not miserable because like she's sad that she didn't see her dad again. She's miserable because her dad kept her in there. I, I like that as a mis- as like a fatal misunderstanding. Yeah. I think that's more fun than uh, Bruce Stern's comment about like where he alludes to the chains like is it keeping you in or yeah. is it keeping us <laughs> out? <laughs> Final question. Would we recommend it? No. I would say no. Probably not. I, I don't know. I remember just seeing this movie when it came out, and I was kind of... I remember thinking it was kind of scary because I was, I don't know, what, 12? Well, yeah, it spooked me as a kid. Right. I was, you know, I'm still pretty... It's, it's, I am too. It's not like eye cancer or anything. It's just very mediocre. Yeah, it is. And I was hoping there'd be more of a redeeming value to it. And I guess, like like I said, Catherine Santa jones is fine in it. Um, the production design's pretty neat, but it's not two hours of your time pretty neat. And it's not fun to watch. It's, it's not. It's honestly pretty boring and dull yeah. a great deal of the time. Yeah. So I, I can't I can't no. really recommend it. Well, guys, it's been another October come and gone. Thank you for indulging wake another horror movie. October yes, wake, wake me up when October ends. Going back to my coffin. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, we will be back in two weeks with a mini episode and we'll take it from there. Right. Bye! Bye.